This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes. It's uh, Series 3, Episode 11? Yes. Yes, it's the future of the office with Julia Hobsbawm, but we'll come to her shortly because, of course, first of all, we welcome Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mr. Mark Stevenson. Well done, John. It's uh, oh, nearly thanks, at the end guys. of the third series and you're finally getting the hang of actually introducing it. It's just wonderful to see this progression in you. And, and I just admire the professionalism and grit that you've dedicated to getting our names and the name of the show and the episode number right overall this time. It begs the question, is there a series four where I'm slick from the beginning or is this the point at which we say, that's that's peak John, we're never going to get any better than this, so let's quit while we're ahead. <laughs> well, we are planning series four, aren't we? And we've, we are. we've decided to make some, some big changes. Have we? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's been great working with Mark, but I think, you know... <laughs> Oh, you can tell we've been working together too long now, can't you? Because we're just relentlessly rude to each other. What we'd like is, uh, I think, uh, a sort of increased role for the listener, because I think our favourite part, the three of us, is the listener feedback. So Mm -hmm. I think we're building on a model for Series 4 where we get more of your questions. And to that point, two emails have come in this week. I guess this really is very exciting now, because this makes this bit sort of a pilot for Series 4. Because if you answer these questions with wit and enthusiasm in an interesting manner, then I think we can safely say that's the direction we should go in. But if this next bit's crap, then I guess it's back to the drawing board for Series 4 before we've even finished Series 3. Yeah, I liked this one from Emily because the key bit of information comes right at the end. So okay. here we go. Dear John, Ed and Mark, I found myself nodding and agreeing out loud to many of the profound statements from John Alexander in the last episode. My small environmental education on non-profit has just voted to unionize, and it's been an exciting, citizen-focused time of coming together. So much of what he said really struck a chord, but I worry about whether Americans as a whole could be trusted as much as John suggested. There are so many anti-vaxxers, climate change deniers, and just generally short-sighted, selfish individuals. Can you help with these worries? Am I underestimating American citizens? Thank you, and keep up the encouraging, positive work. Yours, Emily, in Connecticut, USA. So that's the bit when you realise, oh, she's American. It's all right to say all that. I worried it was a a British emailer saying, (laughs) I think we shouldn't trust all of them because they all seem mad. But she's Mm, one of them, which makes it all right to say that. The reveal is at the end end like a German verb. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, you should go first, Ed, on this one. 
Uh, <laughs> 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 well, I mean, I don't think I don't think it's about trusting any particular demographic within any nation. I mean, you know, I just I saw an article today from Alexandria, uh, you know, Ocasio Cortez, who's just saying, you know, American democracy is in danger. Uh, it's under threat, like it never has been before. And and in some ways, we have similar sort of fragmentation here, as we've discussed endlessly on the podcast. And I think so. It's not about who do you trust. It it's you know, if you we wanted to weave a thread together from several conversations we've had on here, whether it's James Plunkett talking about the revision of the state, you know, from John Alexander talking about citizens, to Rachel Botsman talking about trust, it is about us all stepping up and out more, you know, and then you can not marginalise those uh, more peripheral antagonistic voices, but you've got to listen to what they're saying. But uh, as, as we kind of emphasise continually, it's like the fertile middle ground is where we've got to kind of stake our claim and you know that's where the interesting place to be is yeah very nuanced answer mark yes or no can we trust (laughs) americans i mean i think you know what you have to remember is that but but for the grace of god go you so that actually if you'd have walked in somebody else's shoes you would have ended up exactly like them you didn't born where they were born and all that kind of stuff so you know the person that is the anti-vaxxer you hate you could easily be that person but for an accident of birth Mm. so that means that within all of us there is you know a core of some something we can trust. I think there are mechanisms that are designed to separate us because people profit from that. But you know, I think you can trust Americans. I think you can trust everybody, but you've got to learn to trust them and also trust yourself to go on that journey. So really, it's do you trust yourself to be kinder, more understanding, more empathetic? And the more you do that, the more it spreads. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but actually the real job is you know, we spend all our time thinking, can I trust that person over there? Can I, will they do the thing they're meant to be doing? Uh, and until they do, I won't. And I think the point is, do you trust yourself? And it sounds, um, it sounds to me like Emily does trust herself and therefore just double down on who you are, Emily, because it sounds like you're doing good things and that will spread the light in the world. And um, the kinder you are, the better the world is. And certainly your bit of it. I want to turn the question back to John. John, yes or no? Um, no. <laughs> Well, no, I, th- I, I, I do know I had a similar conversation this week about trust and how there is a cost to yourself of living in a world where you don't trust people. Um, and it sounds like Emily, if she's already running a non-profit environmental education charity, she's already someone who's putting a fair bit of time and energy out there. And I would say the cost to her of believing that she lives in a world where she can't trust other people to come on that journey is probably more damaging than what might happen if she did trust them anyway. Yeah, are you also. I mean, I think you have to have. No, a, can, a, a, can a just job. stop there for a moment? That was John being really nuanced and brilliant. Bit weird, wasn't it? That what's going on? He's on holiday. He's on holiday. You are on holiday. Do you want to tell us where you where you're on holiday? I'm uh, I'm on the south coast of Cornwall in Lou. So you're having time <laughs> off in Lou. <laughs> I am having time off in oh, Lou. Oh God, there was an old there was an old Canadian colleague of mine uh, who heard people in the office talking about time off in Lou and got really indignant, and she just said, she goes. Yeah, how come everyone else is getting time off in Lou? Where's Lou? I I, I want to go. I want to have time off in Lou. And now we know it's in Cornwall. I'm here now. It's lovely. It makes you a very nuanced and balanced person. But um, to anyone listening who knows where I live, we pre-record these, and I'm home now. So if you come round, I'll be at the front door, fully fucking armed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I must apologise, John, because actually you are a very nuanced and lovely person, and I was only doing that for comic effect. You are actually a very smart and, and generous and lovely and you clever don't man. Need to say that. Here's a here's a proper um, here's a proper one, and then we'll get on to Julia. 
um, this is from Nick, who is an architect, um, who listened to our podcast whilst driving a, a diesel car for 12 hours on his way to a funeral, where he then emptied the contents of his uncle's home into recycling and landfill. So um, he was going on a journey, shall we say, as he listened oh, to the gosh. podcast. Yes. Uh, he said, um, dark times call for mindful distractions. So I lift my spirits pondering upon the carbon burp. Should I, as an architect, retrofit three houses with foam and fiberglass, providing occupants with improved comfort but a high embodied carbon? Or should I stick to using wood fiber and other biocarbon sequestering materials but only be able to afford to do one house? I have no idea there. There's no nuance there. I know where I stand on Americans. I mean, (laughs) I need to get my carbon calculator out, but that is an incredibly technical question. Um, I would say, I would say, broadly go for the, the utilitarian benefit of uh, influencing three houses. Mm. I mean, I think the the, the reason that the uh, other materials are so expensive is because they're not being used enough. And what will happen is, as, as time goes by, hopefully the more eco materials will get cheaper because you know you get economies of scale and demand, all that kind of stuff. So we're in that transition point at the moment. I think what I would do is do one of each. So you get you know one that's an exemplar, and you get the and you get one. You can do another one. Do two. Go for the middle ground, and then you can compare. Yeah, the and then you've, yeah, then you've got a compa- comparison. Yeah, and you've got and you've got a control group. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. My God, this is like science. That was really good. I tell you what, that's that's the direction for series four. So there is talk of um, setting up a, a WhatsApp so you can ask your questions directly to Mark and Ed. Um, we have one episode left. Next week will be the final episode of this run. It's a fascinating interview. It's one we've already recorded, but we have not recorded our introduction. So this is really your last chance to get your questions in this series before we take a short break. So if you have anything uh, playing on your mind to do with uh, the future and how you want it to be, yours personally or the planet's, then uh, get them into us. We'll move on now to this week's interview. And again, it's an absolute belter. And I will leave you with Ed to introduce our guest. So I first met Julia what feels like a very long time ago, probably around 2008, uh, in the early years of her amazing think club, Editorial Intelligence. Uh, And we were chatting in the context of my old ethical sustainability comms agency as unbeknownst to me in my callow relative youth, Julia had co-founded her own agency, pioneering what she called Integrity PR years beforehand. But like so many of our esteemed guests on this show, it's almost impossible to do Julia justice by way of a mere introduction, but I'm going to have a go. So Julia is the undisputed queen of networking, and I don't mean that in the slightly vulgar fashion of working a room or a tawdry sense of simply cultivating cumulative contacts, because Julia is driven by an innate sense of authentic curiosity and interest in people. Her approach is genuine and deeply human, motivated by what feels like, in my experience, a fascination not just by the thoughts, ideas and accomplishments of those with whom she cultivates relationships, but also a real empathy with the people behind them. And I can personally vouch for her own thoughtful kindness in this regard. And she is a curatorial genius of bringing interesting people together through cleverly created and innately hospitable, ever so friendly and disarming collisions, for want of a better word. It's been my own highly pleasurable privilege to attend several of Julia's famous Names Not Numbers events, uh, where egos are left largely at the door, and you find yourself immersed effortlessly in a simmering sea of inspiration where eyes and hearts are opened, great minds were, and new friendships are forged. 
But as well as gathering the great and good so artfully and humbly, Julia is also a profoundly provocative and important writer on work culture, work-life balance, and the age of overload. She is chair of the Demos Workshift Commission. She writes for strategy and business and for various outlets, including the OECD network. And in 2021, she was listed in the HR Most Influential list. Her book, The Simplicity Principle, won Best Business Book of 2020, whilst fully connected, uh, was shortlisted for Management Book of the Year. She's got an OBE for services to business and regularly speaks to global audiences in government, public and private sectors. And today we are absolutely thrilled to welcome Julia onto the show to talk about the future of the office in the context of her latest tome, The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. So Julia, a warm and heartfelt welcome to the show. And I guess in the context of your book, we have to ask, where are you? Uh, Are you in your office? Where is your office? Is it nowhere? Well, thank you so much for having me. And my goodness, could you replay that introduction every time one of my kids says, Mum, you're useless? That would be very nice. (laughs) That would be just great to just replay the intro. I'm in my, what is now my home office. Yes, my nowhere office where I've sort of been based, you know, most since the pandemic began. And I have to say giving up my office was not a difficult decision, although I really understand that for lots of people it's really complicated and not even necessarily possible or desirable. But for me, it was both. Yeah. So, I mean, it's almost two years, Julia, since the pandemic turned the world of work upside down, which has obviously forced millions of us to work from home. And we're now limping back to whatever might constitute this new normal. And at the start of your book, you know, you sort of, you share a few sort of data points, which are really quite sort of damning in terms of how effed we are. So, you know, the American Institute of Stress says that 83% of US workers suffer from a work-related illness. South Korea even has a word, guaroza, which is death from overwork. The World Health Organization says that depression and anxiety in the workplace cost the global economy about a trillion dollars a year. Uh, We've got one in four workers imagining quitting or switching their jobs in the great resignation. So, I mean, in that context, how fucked is the office and and how are we supposed to set one another's staplers in lime green jelly while working remotely? Well, I mean, whether or not I say we're fucked or not, ooh, I've said it, is, is really, it's certainly the case that there has been epic dysfunction in the world of work for as long as we've known it. And like a lot of things, the pandemic, I think, just lifted the lid on what we knew already. And, you know, not for nothing are some of the top rated TV shows, those that feature dysfunctional offices, of course, The Office is one of them, but, you know, Succession, the Harry Bosch thrillers, Call My Agent, W1A, you don't have to look very far (laughs) to find the toxic workplace represented in culture. And that's because for a lot of people, the workplace is toxic. Now, of course, there's many, many good benefits to the camaraderie and the learning and all the stuff that maybe we'll get into. But I suppose that what I wanted to emphasise is the context in which not so much the great resignation, but the great reappraisal is taking place, Mm. which is after the pandemic, instead of people rushing back to quote unquote normal, People are doing not that at all. Those that can choose, that is. Of course, there's great many people that have no choice at all. But for, if you like, what might be called the hybrid haves, those that could choose 
are choosing to reassess and reappraise their lives. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. And that's what makes this moment profound and extraordinary. And I think a read across with all those other moments that happen that you you guys articulate on your show with other guests, you know, the rethinking how mm. we live and what is sustainable and what is meaningful. So for me, work is a very crunchy, sexy subject, actually. And I think for a lot of people, it has always been seen as, oh, well, dry and dull as ditch. I think it's completely fascinating. And I think this moment is genuinely exciting really exciting. What would you call a a work-related illness? I'm still thinking about that stat about 83% of US workers having work-related illnesses. So what are they and how can it be that the figure is as high as 83% and we aren't talking even more about what work should be in the future? Well, I mean, the umbrella term is stress. 17 million days of British workers' time was lost to stress, according to the Health and Safety Executive. I mean, not that I want to machine gun data at you, but these are some of the data points that I've, you know, have stuck in my mind because they're so Mm. incredible. You know, 17 million days. And stress, of course, we know manifests itself in anything from anxiety to backache. And of course, The World Health Organization, believe it or not, actually declared stress the biggest single health epidemic of the 21st century before COVID came along. And they've actually included burnout, which is caused by stress, within their their descriptions and classifications of diseases. They haven't classified burnout as a disease, but they've classified it as a cause. And so all that stuff about poor mental health, poor physical health, I think can be put at the door in large part at the way work is managed and work is run Mm. and the dysfunction, you know, to go back to the old F word, you know, work is not great often. Mm. I mean, we've quoted on this uh, podcast before the uh, State of the Workplace report that Gallup does every couple of years. It says sort of 85% of people are kind of disengaged from their work. Yeah. And what's yeah. interesting to me listening to you talk is like, you know, even if you're doing work that actually you might be engaged with or think is, you know, useful. So say you work for a charity or an NGO or something you're passionate about, so you actually believe in the work. Sometimes you go to some of those places and they're, they're almost even more dysfunctional in the way the work is organized. So even if you're doing a purposeful job, you could still end up feeling absolutely miserable and fed up because the way we go about getting people to work. Yes. I mean, I open the book with a quote from the script of The Apartment, a very famous 1960 film directed by Billy Wilder with Jack Lemmon, with Shirley MacLaine. And it opens with the serried ranks of grey desk after desk after desk. And it really portrays office life as it originally was conceived, which is a sort of human production line, one Mm. up from the factory floor. And I suppose what I'm trying to do in my sort of work around what I've called the nowhere office is say, what was work in the office supposed to be like? What phases did it go through? And what has it become? And to to really, I'm, I'm essentially an optimist, to say, well, okay, what what are the good bits that we can pick out of the ruins of work for many people? The dissatisfaction, the stress, the inefficiency, the low productivity. You know, it's difficult to find 
positive metrics around work as you've already articulated so we have to find we have to find a positive future because there's not much positive we can come up with when we look to the near past apart from what everyone bangs on about which is you know oh the camaraderie of the water cooler and you think yes but other things are now coming into play for people like coffee machines (laughs) <laughs> like coffee <laughs> machines, exactly. Although the office, in fact, I think is a very good place to have better coffee if you're a young person who's, you know, not got the creature comforts of, you know, a grown up oldie like me who puts a lot of store by her coffee machine. You know, there are good things about the office. The office is a home from home for lots of people. So I'm not trying to say that the Nowhere Offices is or should be about no office. But I suppose I want to think about the office as a metaphor for all the things that aren't great and to think about how we can make, um, Mm. you know, make greatness from working life, which I think should be great. The question that immediately springs to mind then, Julia, is, is like this big choice that still is like probably encapsulates the moment we're in right now where, you know, you have this sort of drumbeat of return to the office, you know, with some of the positive things that you've just described, you know, being the magnetism which draws people back. And then everyone also at the same time having had this sort of working from home or working from anywhere taste of freedom. And what really strikes me you know, in reading your book and and watching the news headlines, you know, where you've got at one extreme on the spectrum, an organisation like Nationwide, you know, the world's biggest building society, with 13,000 employees saying, basically, anyone can work from anywhere. Yeah, and we're never going to require anyone to come back to the office if they don't want to. What you describe as the sort of soft liners versus the sort of Goldman Sachs, where it's like working from home is an aberration. And, you know, they are genuinely forcing everyone in a hardline way to come back to the office. To some extent, we've all enjoyed a little bit of an out-of-office experience over the last two years. But what do you think is is driving all of that? Why is there such a kind of polarisation of that sort of softline, hardline approach? Yes, it is the question. And there is a, a sort of culture war, actually, I think, about those who essentially want, with a bit of hybrid, tinged, full return to presenteeism and those who don't. Now, you can see politically, you know, you don't have to be massively left wing to say that the capitalist machine would work better and easier with full time presenteeism that is much less hassle than allowing hybrid. But the truth is that I think that technology and culture have driven a change that COVID just proved a tipping point for, where people are going to give of their best if they have flexibility and freedom. And so in the short term, I think that, you know, to use the language of bygone era, the bosses might want to try and manage and organise as simply as possible their workforce back so they can see them and measure them and all that Taylorism stuff. But in reality, that isn't what the generation on whom the world of work is increasingly dependent, the Zeds, want. And in fact, I'm not Generation Z. I'm uh, whatever the generation I am, born in 1964, and I don't want it either. So there is a paradox here which is that the machinery of work, the people that build buildings and sell office space and, you know, worry about their share price and provide employment, want things as they were, but they know things aren't as they were. And everybody else 
is already living the future. And so I think this year, 2022, is going to be, you know, an amazing Petri dish of experimentation in the workplace. It's a very extraordinary moment. I genuinely don't think that we've had a moment like this in the workplace for 100 years. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and, and you look at those existing trends, don't you, where, you know, probably about half of all jobs will be freelance by the end of this decade, you know, and the, ma- the majority of employees see remote and hybrid working as the new norm. And yet we're still building these sort of castles in the air, as you describe them in the book, you know, those kind of incredibly expensive, you know, metal and glass structures, which increasingly just don't look fit for purpose, do they? Well, it's interesting. I quote a couple of buildings in particular in the book as an example of this sort of citadels of presenteeism, castles in the air. And one of them is the big Bloomberg building in Watling Street in the city of London. And I'm basically saying I'm just not sure whether buildings like that will ever be built again, even though in 2017, when it was built, it was championed as the greenest building in Europe. So it's not that buildings aren't going to still be built and it's not the efforts to make them sustainable and helpful to the environment and progressive aren't going to happen. It's just that I genuinely can't see how people are going to want to be in them all the time. <laughs> just on that uh, Bloomberg building, it has this sort of idea of being the greenest building or office building ever. And uh, our, our next episode, we'll have Michael Paulin, who's an architect on, who will d- totally debunk that myth as well. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? How interesting. <laughs> um, but one of the things that also strikes me is something that's told to me by, uh, or pointed out to me by a guy called Tim Reed, who John will know because he co-writes Meet the Richardsons, but he's also an innovation kind of expert when he's not writing comedy. And we were working together and he does this great thing where he's, uh, you know, he goes into companies and talks about, you know, creativity and he says to them, right, so um, I just want you to put your hand up and tell me where you have your best ideas. And uh, people put their hands up and go, oh, when I'm going for a run or when I'm going, you know, having a shower or when I'm walking the dog or on the drive into work. And he says, literally nobody has ever said in any of uh, (laughs) those times, have they said in the office? Like nobody <laughs> yeah. has any ideas in the office so we actively say to these people come in here and have great ideas and be productive whatever and we somehow create an environment where we seem to have made that literally impossible to even be creative human beings yeah the old brainstorm and the post-it notes my god yeah. some of that has always been toe curling and always will be i think it's the case that certain kinds of meetings and gatherings cement relationships out of which comes creativity because creativity is dependent on trust if you don't know people and trust them you know it's so it's not a kind of two legs good four legs bad argument that I'm making against the office but one of the things that surprised me and I should say I did a lot of interviews for the book lots and lots of interviews right across the professional working world the top to the bottom the in between the youngsters the oldies etc grandees people coming up through the ranks and One of the things I really changed my mind on, actually, was the technology, because as Ed says, I've been thinking about our connectedness for a long time. I've been writing about it. And in some senses, I think the pandemic made me rethink a slightly po-faced view I had before, that the human is always better than the machine, basically. And now I think mm, the right kind of technology used in the right way, can really enhance human collaboration. So, for instance, one of the people I interviewed 
is one of the most senior advertising people in the world. He runs advertising teams out of Japan and across Europe and so on and so forth. Well, they had to use technology to collaborate. And they said, it's possible. You know, you talk to psychotherapists, they say that their patients are perfectly capable of receiving great therapy on Zoom. So there is an intimacy that technology can give that we have now got to price in. And I think that's why Facebook stopped being Facebook or one of the reasons why Facebook stopped being Facebook and went all meta because this thing called the metaverse is coming, whether we disapprove of it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, in that we are not all going to be fully present in each other's company or in transit to be fully present in each other's company as much as we were before. And I think we might as well get on with it and move into the future rather than worry about the past, Mm. I think. And that's a really interesting point. I mean, obviously, on this podcast, we've only ever been in the same room together once. <laughs> so, it's one yeah, of the great you know, advantages of it, I think. Yeah. I, I, I much prefer it that way. <laughs> but you yeah. also touch on that in the book, Julia, because you say, you know, you describe, and it's interesting to hear you talk a little bit more about technology, because you, you talk about the relentless rise of new technologies and automation and say that actually in offices, we've often been stuck in an endless reboot where instead of yeah. using the technologies we already have well, we constantly create new systems and waste loads of time adjusting and trying to get our heads around them. And so to what extent do you think that plays out now? Because obviously lots of technologies like Zoom were around for years and we've we've bounced into them during the pandemic. But what does that next generation look like to Im- embed a more healthy hybrid world? Well, I think just to go back a step, the point about technology being not your best friend. You only have to, you know, look at the call centre culture or banking or the computer says no or trying to fill in a form. You know, the way technology is designed and delivered is a problem, but so too is the the way that sometimes interactions that humans should be having, like in human resources and people management, has been deferred off to technology so that, you know, certainly several of my children have experienced the humiliation, frankly, of applying for jobs and you never even get an acknowledgement that your application has been received. So you never even know whether you got the job or not, because you're not sure whether it even got received. And that's where technology has been used badly. In a very specific way, your question about how is it being used in the future? It is another observation I made about the way tech is being used is that All that endless chat for its own sake on channels like comment boxes on, I don't know, (laughs) Slack, right? That I can't say I've ever been a fan of. What I do see coming up is a much more immersive way to use working while being digitally present with others. Now, if I ever thought I'd utter that sentence (laughs) a year ago... I would have shot myself. But the truth is, actually, I now understand more. I'll give you an example. A friend died. She was extremely ill. Nobody could reach her. She was in America. She died. And I held something totally spontaneous, which was a WhatsApp vigil for her. And I created a WhatsApp group and I said, I am going to be in my front room, this room I'm talking to you from, with a candle. And I'm going to recommend some music that make me think of her. 
And I wonder whether any of you would like to join me. And I honestly had no idea what that would be like at all. I thought I may just sit here with my candle on my own. And for an hour and a half, about 30 of us on our own, in our atomized rooms, gathered digitally to remember this lovely woman. It was fascinating. And actually, what that meant in practice was somebody said, I've got a glass of wine and I'm listening to this. I'm now lighting my candle. This is what makes me think of Jessica. Jessica Morris, her name was. I'm playing this piece of music. And then there were also silences for 15 minutes and nobody said anything. And then somebody else would come in. It was profound. And it made me think, I was actually writing the book at the time about the rhythm of how people work. And then I interviewed somebody um, called Josh Green, who used to be at WeWork. And he's now set up something called Groove.io. He's based in Israel. And his platform is exactly that rhythm that you might jump onto you know, call it a groove, call it a Zoom, it doesn't matter. A platform where other people are connected, like we're on our platform at the moment. And you might go, hi, 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 and this is what's going on for me, blah, blah, blah. And then you stop and you do your own thing in your own head, but you're still connected. And then you're in dialogue. And so essentially, technology that allows you to feel what you feel, as well as doing what you're doing, That I think is very interesting. And I don't think we gave that as much sort of airspace before the pandemic. No, it's it's, that's technology is creating and holding space, isn't it? Which I think is really interesting. And when when we interviewed Margaret Heffernan on the future of leadership, you know, and I know from my own work with the Forward Institute on responsible leadership, so many of the senior folk I've come into contact with are so addled and overwrought and overwhelmed because they don't create those spaces you know they're literally lurching from zoom to zoom without any sort of respite or reflection time actually in between and and I guess the question there is you know I mean and you've worked you've written a lot about this before in terms of overload and overwork I mean one of the other risks of the working from home during the pandemic has been the people have actually worked more haven't they Yes, you know, they've they've actually there's been no dividing lines. There's been a total blurring of domestic and professional life. And so, how do we sort of combat that infobesity and that that overwhelm that's gone on? God, Ed, I love your questions. There's like a million of them at once. I've got to kind of back up, sorry, like a politician, <laughs> like a politician going. Let me ask your policy point. I'm just going to say the to the point about space. When I was a baby, I worked um, in publishing, in publicity. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the 80s, when in fact, talking heads, the road to nowhere was the single <laughs> of the moment. When I was in my first job, surrounded by filing cabinets, and I worked in publishing, and I had to phone. The author, Edna O'Brien, a goddess, a giant back then and now. And she had an answer phone. She had the literally, I think, the very first answer phone. <laughs> and she had this amazing message. I'm not going to try and replicate her beautiful, lilting Irish accent. But she said, I can remember it. I can remember where I was sitting when I heard it. I was 21. And she said, the voice said, hello, this is Edna. This is a machine. You have to leave a message. There'll be a pause. Pause. It'll give you time to think. 
And I thought, oh, my God, that's so marvellous. And actually, I realised subconsciously that has informed my my approach to technology ever since. You know, that space is is completely vital. I've totally forgotten the other question, Ed. Sorry. <laughs> well, it, it's as much about, you know, trying to explore, you know, how we got to this position. Oh, yes, the always on and the craziness. The always on and the craziness, you know, because I think that is part of this liminal moment, as you describe it, isn't it? Where we've had a chance to sort of hopefully get a different objectivity and perspective on why we were all working so madly. Okay, so I've come up with this sort of historical line of phases of work, which you may or may not, readers may or may not agree with, but shall I just outline yeah, it briefly? Yeah, that would be, be brilliant. Okay, so what I think is that insofar as we're in a great big giant reset that we all think we're in, you could say, well, the last big, great big global giant reset was after the Second World War. So let's start in 1945. And actually 1945, when a lot of the post-war institutions were being created, the UN and, and, uh, and so forth, out of which, of course, was the World Health Organization. 1945 to 1977, I call the optimism years epitomized by the skyscraper, epitomized by the vaunting upward build of the world. And there was a simplicity and a naivety, and to quote Margaret Heffernan, a willful blindness, you know, a willful blindness to the blatant sexism, racism, you know, lack of freedom, all that stuff. But it did encapsulate optimism, which I do think we need to return to, that people felt that the the office life was about creating things and building things and working towards something. By 1977, the computer was sort of peeking its head around the door of offices, if you like, not in a desktop way necessarily, but, you know, there were computers, well, I suppose in a desktop way. And I, the next phase I would call the mezzanine years after a wonderful novel, if you haven't read it, called The Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker, which takes place almost entirely on an escalator with a sort of existential young, the musings of an existential young man wondering about, you know, coffee and loo breaks and things. It's a completely wonderful novel of office life. So the mezzanine years was, I believe, when a certain kind of uncertainty came into the world of work, which is, mm, you know, women weren't getting such a great deal and technology was arriving, but people were still tethered to their desk. The hierarchies and inequalities were becoming a lot clearer and you could see the future unfolding. And I would say that that lasted until about 2006. And then in 2007, when the internet and Facebook and Twitter and Airbnb and the whole shebang arrived, it was the beginning of what I call the co-working years. And that lasted until 2019. And there's a book called The Four Hour Work Week that was written by Tim Ferriss, a course podcasting giant. And that book certainly changed my life. And I think it changed a lot of people's lives. And it stayed on the bestseller list for seven years. And essentially, it posited the view that we are all mobile people, that we can embrace mobility and the technology, and that we can have a role in our own destiny, and that we don't have to be slaves to the desk. And I just thought that lifted the lid off a lot of the sensibility for people and really encapsulated a movement of in which mobility 
became central to the identity of work. And all of that meant that by 2019, we were heading without realising it towards collective burnout. Everybody was, I mean, I say everybody, you know, my caveats do stand. I'm not trying to be minimising of the presenteeism without any choice whatsoever that an awful lot of people have. But amongst the professional working classes, if you like, which is the fastest growing sector of work in the world, in the developing world, 40% of the of the workers are in the knowledge economy. And I would say that by 2019, the workers in that cohort, us, if you like, were knackered, on and off planes, endless conferences. That's why mindfulness in those years gained such traction, because we were feeling the inconsistency that you can't really have a life and constantly, constantly be on the move. And that's why I think the literal shutdown of 2020 was so powerful because I think it was a metaphor for everything stopping and a stock take beginning and that's the beginning of what I call the nowhere office the phase of that we're in at the moment basically because even that disruption of the commute I mean and and you know I think that sort of cumulative increase of people traveling ever longer distances and spending ever longer getting to and from the workplace that that would never have been tackled would it without that kind of that that lockdown disruption because you know that was just completely normalized even though it was you know vast costs of carbon and time and stress and money that's right and i've been struck just on my very infrequent trips back to london since relocating you know to norfolk about nine ten months ago it's still very quiet, isn't it? It's like there hasn't been. I got to Liverpool Street Station at eight a.m. the other day, and you know it was literally still tumbleweeds along the main concourse, and that's you know one of the stations which serves uh, the heart of the city of London. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I think the economics are fairly clear for people to see that if this continues, there's going to be a you know, a great realignment of a shift from, say, the city to the suburb, and not all of that will be positive. I mean, I think those people agitating for a fully remote existence need to be slightly careful what they wish for. I mean, if you have city centres where the revenues aren't coming in for commuting and travelling, for example, and, you know, all the support businesses and the restaurants that serve that start to go out of business, I mean, one of the first things that happens other than the poverty, is that crime goes up, for example. Mm. So the shifts, and I I divide the book into shifts, and I'm chair of the Work Shift Commission. You know, the word shift is no accident. We are in a shifting landscape, is profound. I agree with you that I just don't think it's going to go back to normal. However, here's a thought. Am I, in the end, just articulating a burnout and an exhaustion and a realignment of the developed world, Mm. we could find that we're all reconnecting with our inner purpose and poise and work-life balance, but that the developing world wants to literally eat our lunch and they'd be quite happy to work an 80-hour week. And that's one of the reasons why I call this book and my work The Nowhere Office, because we don't know. It may just be that half the world has stopped working so hard and the other half takes its place. 
Well, that's certainly the way it's worked historically, isn't it? I mean, like as you say, with sh- shifting emphasis and work patterns around the world, I mean, that's why we've exported most of our uh, material consumption carbon emissions to the people who will make all the things that we don't make anymore. John, you, I guess, don't often work in an office with other people, do you? Do you, do you think your comedy would be better if you were surrounded by you know, a support team or, or not? Well, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this throughout the chat in relation to my own job, and I think I am surrounded by a support team because the audience is in the in the writing of material i i cannot write you know in in this my alternative to the nowhere office would be i guess i do come up with jokes whenever and wherever but in terms of sculpting them into a show i can only do that at gigs i have to go and do local shows and small theater shows to have the drive i have to look into the eyes of people because my brain works very differently on my own to what it does in front of an audience. On my own, I write material about depression and how we're all doomed and nothing's worth anything. And then I get to a gig (laughs) on a Friday night and I see people who've worked hard in or out of offices and I think, oh, they just want to be made to laugh. So why don't you tell that funny story about the banana skin or whatever it is? Because my brain works differently in the room with other people than it does on my own. And I'm wondering about you know, the the hard to measure consequences of all that in terms of what we think of. Well, you say something very interesting about performance, John, and I couldn't agree more. And it's one of the fascinating accidents that we've discovered and the performance value of Zoom or Teams or Google Hangouts, which is on the whole, people do give their best selves and they do perform. And a friend of mine who works in HR says that anybody who more than once puts themselves on mute or hides themselves on a Zoom call, they know that that person is not in good shape emotionally and they immediately jump in and say what's going on. And so what I think is that the human is very adaptable at doing what it needs to do, which is we like to distract ourselves, which is why we do put ourselves often on mute and we fiddle and we multitask. And that's why the office water cooler is all about that. You know, humans like to be distracted, but they do also like to be together and they do like to bounce off each other and see the whites of each other's eyes. And when they can't do it in person, they do it digitally. But there's nothing like then coming together for a true in-person gathering and that's what I think office life is going to be more about like the red letter day you won't be coming in to sit next to each other in serried ranks doing your inbox or even having a meeting you will be coming in to cut a birthday cake or you will be coming in to go today is the 105th day since we did this project how do we all think it's gone Mm. Well, we've spoken a lot about kids, haven't we, in, in terms of lockdown? And, what you know, there was a lot of discussion about the effect of mental health on children of not being in school. And we, we didn't really, I didn't hear a lot in of, of that conversation around not going into the office. And I guess that's what you're saying there is part of that, that if we are going to go back to that way of working, there needs to be a recognition that if you are going to get people together, it should boost morale rather than become part of what they hate about their jobs. Very much so. So I have banged on for a long time about something I call social health, which is not quite the same as well-being. And it's certainly not driven by sort of a beanbag thing, right? So the idea of wellness at work has been colonised by people selling 
I believe, sort of bullshit, really, about mindfulness and mental health, rather than saying, look, a place of work should work well and be enabling you to do your best work and to enable you to feel that you're healthy and thriving in that work. That's not to say that people don't have vulnerabilities that they bring to work and that they should be supported, but we've suddenly kind of adopted again in those co-working years a narrative that somehow work and our mental health is terrible and that's just the way it is. Well, hang on a minute, why is it like that? If you're working for a great organisation that treats you well, that listens to you, that gives you purpose, that you know, appreciates you and that there's equality and fairness and all that stuff, there's no reason at all why you should be riddled with mental health problems related to your work. So I think managers and leaders and people need to say it's about social health at work, just like about physical health and mental health matters. It's about how do we connect meaningfully and well? Are we doing good stuff here, people? And that's got to be front and centre of any policy. And I don't know how many leaders are up for that. I'm a bit critical of the boys and girls and men and women and people at the top, I'm afraid. Yeah, because underpinning a lot of that is this question of trust, isn't it? I mean, and again, you expand on this quite nicely in the book where you have that sort of command and control type of approach, which is driven by the presenteeism and wanting to have everyone back under scrutiny and, you know, capitalist surveillance monitoring of the workforce and timesheets and productivity and all of that versus a sort of you know, trust and, um, and loosely verify type of approach. And I mean, you call it the marzipan management. <laughs> like, yeah. And we, I don't want to keep quoting Margaret Heffernan, but she she said previously on the podcast, you know, she'd never decreed when she was a CEO how, where or when her employees should do their work. She just sort of, you know, the, the tasks were briefed out. And as long as people delivered the right outcomes and outputs, it was kind of up to them how they did it. So to, to what extent do you think that marzipan management is still the problem and that sort of Ricky Gervais type of sticky layer that stops real change happening? I think it's a huge problem and I think it's embedded and I think it doesn't just create sort of eye rolls. I think it creates serious disasters. I mean, I think what it does is creates layers of management where no one's responsible for anything. And I think that's also demoralising. But I think trust and control definitely need to be reassessed and reappraised. You know, all the surveillance software side of things that have been going on, you know, Microsoft got very wrapped over the knuckles for that, that, you know, people's loo breaks were being looked at and so on. I mean, not looked at, but, you know, (laughs) you're on your computer and people can tell when you're going off. But I think it's bigger than that. I also think it is about the bullshit that surrounds a lot of management. Um, I used to be a visiting academic at Bayes Business School. And one of the academics there wrote a book, a very, very good book on bullshit. And I suppose I'd just like to track back to this point about well-being, which is a lot of leaders feel that if they embrace the, the sort of what's cool and hip, that they don't have to actually think and change the way they behave and the way they lead, which is why the whole beanbag culture mindfulness stuff happened. So just to give you an example, I was sitting at a dinner not so long ago, a rare occasion when someone had a birthday party and we all, you know, trooped out in person and he was a retired finance guy he was lovely we chatted and I was telling him about 
this stuff? And he said, oh, yes, yes, we're very concerned. In my business, I still stay on the board. We're very concerned with mental health. In fact, you know, he said one of our board members has significant mental health problems and looked at me as if he wanted me to give him a gold star. And I said, look, that's kind of bully for you, but what is going on in the way your work operates that might be contributing to his mental health problems? Or are you just tolerating his mental health problems because you think they're nothing to do with you? And he blinked and paused and I thought, uh-oh, he's not going to like me at dessert. And then he said, well, the problem is we're all under such pressure because everybody's got their school fees and everybody wants to keep working. And I think his mental health problems are connected to that. And I said, yeah, I think they are too. And that's what you've all got to think about. When you're widening out what the office means and what work is now and should become, how easy is it for the you know people listening to this podcast now how easy is it for them to say what of my job that I'm unhappy with is due to the mechanics of being in the office or being at home and how much is the job itself? I guess in your head, I'm thinking if I was listening now, it would all just merge together to a broad feeling of I'm not very happy in my work at the moment. And how easy is it for you to be able to help people and say, well, that is a world in which you could do that job this way? Well, I'm a big fan of calling it out. I mean, you know, if you're around a Ricky Gervais in your working life, call it out. I mean, you know, that wonderful Jackie Weaver, she was mm-hmm. marvellous. Now a stand-up comic. But Well, I mean, some of the best stand-up comics are, of course, truth-sayers about life, aren't they, John? I mean, you know, Jackie Weaver told us what we know, which is call it out. I think people should feel that this is a moment to speak out and call it out. Of course, stuff is complex. I don't want to be simplistic. People feel anxious and depressed and the modern world and the modern problems. You you blokes talk about it brilliantly with your other guests. We know we're in a pretty bleak world. And yet, and but, I'm optimistic that everybody from the top to the middle to the bottom sideways, backwards, forwards, can do something to say, well, this is how I'd like to work. I mean, back to Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss Mm. gave people permission to rethink the whole notion of presenteeism. And he did it not by saying, tell your manager to F off. Au contraire. He said, tell your manager that you're going to get much better results if they give you freedom. So he liberated the reader to think They had agency. And all the data shows that managers tend to colonize the power and the choice and the agency and not distribute it. And that what people want more than anything else is choice, which brings us back to why everybody's so keen on hybrid. Now, some people do like the guardrails of being in an office all the time, and that's fine too. So, my advice to anybody is to say, Check in with yourself. Hmm. What's going on for you? Do you like your job? If not, why not? Now, it doesn't mean that everybody can, you know, tear up a bit of paper and walk off into the sunset. Of course it doesn't. Real life is hard. But it does mean that I don't think that the way we've looked at what we do, why we do it, where we do it and who we do it with has necessarily been in the right order. That's all. No, and it's about centering the human, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the bits that you sort of bring forth really powerfully in the book. 
I mean, I'm still struck by and reflecting on, not least because I'm a full-time single dad, the the quote you have from Professor Kerry Cooper, you know, about the potential incredible reinvention of the role of men in the family as a result of, uh, you know, a possible transition to a more, you know, healthy hybrid type of work balance. So, you know, instead of this traditional optimism years, historic sole breadwinner type of function to genuine co-carers and co-parents. And, you know, and that could be enormously powerful, couldn't it? Very much so. I mean, the nowhere concept, if you like, you know, just to spell out the obvious, nowhere is an anagram of now and here, or rather it divides into two words, now and here. And we know that the here and now, the carpe diem mindset is important. I think we do need to think more about what we want here and now. It's not about saying, oh, everything is awful and I might as well, you know, look out for number one because we're nowhere. It's about saying we are all in transition. We're all in reassessment. The world is in reset. Let's make it better. Let's make it more meaningful. Let's make it more spread out. It doesn't mean that we all do a four day a week. It doesn't mean that we all do half as much work. None of that. But it is about saying it's okay to say things have been pretty awful. And actually, for the majority of people, I would even go so far as to say that for the majority of people, work has been pretty awful. There, I've said it. (laughs) So sue me. Don't you think, though? Do you agree? I don't miss office life, I have to say, you know, having been a solopreneur, as you sort of dubbed them, for four years now, and probably partly a solopreneur even before that, even while I was working in my old agency, I don't miss a lot of that stuff, actually. I find my camaraderie and connection and my domestic centering, you know, really, really important. But but you're a great advocate of work itself, though, aren't you, Julia? I mean, you know, you Uh, we've talked on this podcast a lot about universal basic income you know and increased leisure time and the the, this work-life balance piece but you know purposeful work is a great emancipatory and liberating force in itself isn't it I think so I mean that's not to say that you know I'm lucky I've always loved my work I'm not trying to say that everybody does or should or could love their work but what I think is it comes back to my point about A very important distinction, if you run an organisation that says we are very supportive of mental ill health, what you're not saying is we want to promote mental wellness and we want to play our part in that. It's the emphasis you give. And all I want people who work to do is to say, gosh, do you think I ought to want to do this job? And if not, maybe I should do a different job. And the people running work should say, isn't that my number one priority to create meaningful work? And I just don't really understand why we're not asking those questions more. That's not to say that you can't have a different economic model, but that is well above my pay grade and I don't have that economic answer. (laughs) I don't think there's a solution coming down the track anytime soon, I'm afraid, that says we aren't going to all have to work to make our living. I just don't see that. And I'm not really a fan of universal basic income because I can't see that working for people because you see so much collapse in confidence if people don't have any purpose or meaning in their lives. Now, if we had a wonderful communitarian, collegiate way of running society you know, you Ed have articulated in particular, well, maybe, but I don't see that happening 
anytime soon. So I suppose I want to locate my arguments very much in the now and the here and the here and the now. Probably because I lack the imagination to look beyond, you know, <laughs> properly future naughty. I think I'm rather future nowy. <laughs> I mean, and the other thing that really struck me in the book is, is as you say, it's not a one size fits all type of modelling. A lot of your perspectives on the sort of future of work in the office will depend on where you are in your career, and you you've got a lovely sort of definition of learners, leavers, and leaders. Can you can you explain that for our listeners about why those different perspectives are so important? Yeah, so the six shifts in the book in which these four time periods reoccur, if you like, to anchor us all and to remember the past are the whole question of time and place. That's the first shift, you know, where do we locate ourselves? One of the other shifts is networks and how we build and frame relationships. One of the shifts is on management, another shift is on wellness, a shift is on productivity. And the second shift that I articulate is the one about the identity of work and the workplace and the identity of people in work. And I do think that we might be moving into a different era where the kind of question of how you identify yourself by pronoun or gender or sexual choice or anything might in fact have not outlived its usefulness because inequality should always be campaigned against etc but that i think in the nowhere office world the very identity of work and what work you do at what stage in your life might become more dominant i'm not necessarily saying it should but i think it will and i think the life stages are whether you are broadly speaking at the beginning of your working life if you're a learner you might need to be around mentors you might need to be around comrades you need might you might need to be in the office more actually or differently to those at the end of their career or middling in their career that have got caring responsibilities and want to dip in and out and might have stronger networks who i call the lever uh, although the lever is often quite isolated and likes the company and the camaraderie so there's no hard and fast fixed rules and the leader spans both those categories if you like the leader can be young the leader can be old the leader can be a learner or a leaver above all the leader's got to learn to be a listener right the leader has got to really hear what's being told to them so i suppose that the the shift around identity is what i also think is very interesting and you know whether or not as i say one's individual identity as an individual person is going to matter as much as one's individual working life stage i just do feel that work does matter and that we should talk more about work than we do weirdly it's also the identity in terms of the way you show up and i know mark you know had his red stilettos that he would always wear for the really important (laughs) meetings to give him (laughs) confidence you know and to have the poise and elegance to be convincing particularly when he's dealing with the military Mm, i tell you what just listening to all this i just i'm just thinking uh, the idea of going to an office fills me i I always hated it Well, I'm not anti-office though. And in fact, funnily enough, a a friend of mine is in a very bad way in his life and lots of us are going around to see him a lot. And he worked for me for years. Uh, He's my longest serving sort of employee and subcontractor. 
although he once tested my limits quite severely when I asked him to order some envelopes and he managed to order the most expensive envelopes that were possibly listed. I mean, I think they were calfskin lined envelopes. This was about 30 years ago and we still dine out on that story. Anyway, I, we went, I went to see him with another couple of people and I haven't seen them since I ran an office and they worked for me 25 years ago. And he has made lifelong friends with these two people and we all got together and one of the women, this was only on Saturday, and one of them said, oh, you know, should we have a should we have a meeting? So I don't want to underestimate the camaraderie, the life shaping. Mm. You know, I often, I don't know about you, I often think about that novel I've never written. And what always comes up in my mind is the different geographies of the different offices I've worked in, my relationship to London, where I've worked most of my life, or the offices I've visited people in in New York. So the office is fantastically psychically powerful. And Susie Orbach, the psychotherapist and social commentator, I interviewed her for the book, and she said, work is a very emotional place. So I think that's what's really going on here is that some of us go, oh, my God, I'm so glad not to be working out of an office. And I'm with you on that. But that's not to underestimate that the place of work, whether it's literal or liminal, it that still matters. Like to your point, John, about your audience. In mm. the end, you've got to connect with your audience. And it comes back to this point, Ed, you know, yes, of course, the human in the machine age. Mm. If we aren't human when we work, what are we? And the thing we rail against most and that a toxic workplace represents most is a sort of inhuman approach, either to what's being produced or sold or to the workers. And I think we're fed up with that. The pandemic has made us feel mortal and we want to live and we want to live well. Yeah, I mean, there's something here about the resourcefulness, isn't there? The kind of the capacity to reimagine and reinvent. I mean, I was really struck by the example used in the book when you actually you described the the D Day back office, you know, established on the beaches in Normandy. Um, yeah. And there's a hilarious quote you incorporated where there was a very dry commentary which said considering the size and nature of the operation the number of typewriters lost or damaged beyond repair during the assault or by subsequent enemy action was surprisingly small which is sort of understatement of the century but you know in terms of this sort of reimagination and there's a great quote you use from ben page as well the ceo of ipsos says we still need offices we just don't need them for work so what does that future office, what could it look like if it's not actually about being chained to a desk and being monitored in front of a laptop? What would those, what could our offices be if we were to be really bold in the reimagination and reinvention of them? I think it will be spaces and places that may or may not in 20 years time even look like or be called offices. I mean, in 2008, after the great financial crash, the legendary architect Frank Duffy took a walk around New York and said, the office is not a useful unit of analysis anymore. And the point about the D-Day Normandy Landings back office, my husband's an antiquarian bookseller, and he has this beautiful grey cloth bound book detailing the back office of the Normandy Landings function. And it it really got me thinking. I was looking at this stunningly beautiful book during lockdown and I thought, my God, that was an office. They built that office on the sand for the most important effort of the Second World War. So in a way, it was a nowhere office. I mean, it 
you know, it just popped up, didn't it? Yeah. And so you look in retail at the way pop-ups are happening. I think the office of the future will be the where the place on places and spaces where people come together to create and produce something. And that might be a, a Wednesday in Starbucks and a Monday in a in a hotel suite, or it might be an office block that for three quarters of the rest of the time does, I'm making this up completely, you know, cookery, <laughs> cookery courses or whatever. Hmm. I just think that space will start to serve the rhythms of people rather than to be edifices that we have to serve. And I think mm. that is what the skyscraper and the building and the posh office of presenteeism forced you to do is serve a life that wasn't your own. And I don't think people want that anymore. So you're saying sort of function follows form there, you know, yeah. It's like we, you, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I was, you've, as you were talking, I was reflecting um, during the pandemic and lots of people came to me to say, help us think through this strange time. And I did quite a lot of strategy work, which was just a very, you know, sort of questioning everything kind of level. I'm thinking of one particular client who had five big city centre offices, you know, places like Oxford Streets in London, you know, really big, expensive. And um, they, after we'd finished with this, this job with them, they basically gave notice on all of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because they realised that they, they had to work sort of separately. And what they've now done is they've bought five cafes yeah, um, uh, with some with some rooms above. So it's because mostly, like you know, you can work Fantastic. at home. You can come into the cafe, and actually, if you if we do need to get together and go upstairs and you know sit around and have a proper old meeting, we've got stuff up there. And actually, they've also now got five extra businesses, which are these cafes, which are doing quite well. <laughs> so they've <laughs> that t- is a, a, they've, they've saved themselves. I think they said there's something like three hundred thousand pounds worth of rent a year, you know. And now they've got five cafes that are actually paying for themselves. That is completely fascinating. I'd love that case study off you, actually. And in fact, one of my many children is doing a stint living and working above a pub at the moment, and they love it because their place of work is spacious and there's a community amongst the other people who live and work above this pub. And it's just brilliant. I think suggesting on a podcast of which John Richardson is one of the presenters that there is a, there's an option and a very sensible one of, of living and working above a pub. That, yeah. that way madness lies. I'd love some facts and figures on that for the family. No, but this question of how we live and how we work, the blended self is vital, but there are pitfalls. The pitfalls being you've got to have much better discipline and control around diary and schedules and turning on and off and all the stuff that's also going out around our identity as social media addicts and our relationship to tech. You know, it's all back to this sense of of reset. We need to be physical and digital. We need to work and rest. And we need to do that in a much more fluid way, I think. Are you optimistic then for the future? You've, you've sort of questioned maybe individual employers. I'm totally optimistic because I think to the Mr. and Mrs. Cafe point, you know, it's all being ripped up. And I think that's really healthy. It's disruptive. It's complicated, but it's healthy. Ooh, silence. <laughs> I, I never know what to say when you're optimistic and confident like that. It sort of throws a spanner in the works. 
I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to be optimistic on this podcast. It's a doom and gloom podcast. No, you are, absolutely. I'm totally optimistic. It's just that we save it till the end, and then when you were really optimistic, I thought, oh, maybe we're finished then. (laughs) 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 I think we are finished. I think we finish on a note of optimism, surely. Yeah, and the other thing, you know, if we wanted an upbeat note on which to conclude, you know, I mean, you interviewed Charles Handy, you know, sort of veteran management leadership guru, and he described that brilliant village metaphor, didn't he, of the sort of office of the future, where it is, as you say, that balance between physical and digital and people genuinely cooperating and working with rather than for and all of these I mean they sound slightly utopian but when you try and imagine what that would feel like it does feel like the antithesis of where we were two years ago. Although of course lots and lots of businesses have always been pioneering being great places to work and that's why you've got things like Glassdoor and rankings. All I would say is that not enough organisations and businesses have asked, are we really doing well enough? So for instance, if I could banish one thing forever post-pandemic, it would be the 360 degree appraisal, you know, the sort of Stasi like, let's everybody talk about you behind your back and then let's ask you to justify your performance. I, I find it hideous and inexcusable. I've yet to be convinced that it's in any way positive but what Mm. I would like to see is reviews and frank exchange of you know what's going on which works both ways where people can say well I don't think this organization is going in a direction that's particularly good Mm. this is my idea for change so I think power is shifting I think that's a good thing I don't think I'm a naive optimist but I think I'm quite a purposeful optimist I do think you got to change you know my favorite joke is how many Californian psychoanalysts does it take to change a light bulb (laughs) one but the light bulb has to really want to change you know it's all about change Mm. talking about that review system John uh, Michael the producer Ed and I have have been having a bit of a chat about your performance (laughs) yes after the the show if that's okay (laughs) excellent well just pop it on Twitter like all my other feedback (laughs) yeah can you imagine a 360 degree review on Twitter well Twitter (laughs) is a 360 degree review that is exactly my point (laughs) carnage no we're going for rebuild and reset wonderful thank you so much for your time my pleasure. So there we go, Mark. What what thoughts have you had after our chat uh, since we chatted to Julia? So one of the things I thought um, we all talk about how busy we are and how we've got busier and all that kind of stuff. And actually, if you look at the research, that's not true. We're no busier than our our forefathers were or our parents were, but we're just busy doing different things. And one of the things that has happened is busyness has now become this new badge of honor. Look how useful I am mm. because I'm really, 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 really busy. And we talk about it a lot and we say how tired, tired we are and how we're doing all this stuff. So I think there's a, also another nuance that there's something in the culture that's we've all, we're all trying to prove ourselves by saying how busy we are. And we do it at work as well. And that's to do with presenteeism as well. And I think there's there's a, there's a deeper psychological problem, which is, you know, our need to prove ourselves by working really hard. And I think that, again, comes back to some of the other things we've talked about, you know, the dysfunction of the cultures of organizations. So we're burnt out, but it's not because we're working any harder, but we're burnt out doing different things in different ways and worrying about it more. And I thought that that really struck me as something we probably didn't talk about. And another thing I thought was, she said, you know, you know, she said, um, if you put yourself on mute 
or go off the, the Zoom call for a couple of times, then somebody should say, they're probably not feeling great. There's, you know, to step in, there's a mental health issue. I think that's not true. I sometimes come off those meetings because I'm bored shitless. But <laughs> I, think that, I think the thing that really struck me, I think mostly is she said towards the end, the pandemic has made all of us feel more more mortal. And therefore we've decided we want to live and live better and live well, more well. And certainly we need to really look at how work is and how the office is. And that really struck a chord with me because I think that has mm. definitely been a big part of why we're all feeling unsettled and why we need to rethink this stuff. Because it's like, yeah, you know, we're all going to die. Those of us that haven't had, you know, people very close to us die have all still felt it. So, you know, I think that is a very strong, she's right that this, that these next sort of five years, I think will be a really interesting sort of experiment in how we deal with that mortality issue in our working lives. Yes, I'm worried we're already quite far down the path of going back to things the way they were. So mm. off the back of that, I have two questions for you, Ed. I've always assumed when you dip in and out of these podcasts that it's symptomatic of Wi-Fi in Norfolk. But having had that conversation about people dropping off Zoom calls, I just want to ask, first of all, are you okay? <laughs> Yes, I'm fine. <laughs> it's nothing to do with my mental health. Secondly, what what I took from Mark's comment there is is you know a response to presenteeism and and how we all say we're busy and we we, we perhaps do too much in our minds and, and not enough physically. That w what we should be honest about is when we take time off, you know, just being present in not being at work and having the courage to say I'm not doing anything now. So given that I am on holiday, in one syllable. Can you express how you felt about that chat with Julia? <laughs> One syllable? <laughs> yeah, I'm on holiday, mate. I shouldn't even be doing this. Mark's made me feel now that actually I'm one of these people who said, oh, I'm so busy. I've got to do podcasts on holiday. Actually, you pair of bricks are ruining my time off. I should be in the pub now. One syllable just have to be whoop. Yeah, that'll do. I mean, I was going to be a bit more nuanced than that. I mean, what, what struck me listening to Julia was, you know, I kept recalling that old Bill Hicks skit. You know, where his boss says to him, you know, how come you're not working, Hicks? And he says, well, there's nothing to do. And the boss says, well, at least pretend like you're working. And he says, well, why don't you pretend like I'm working? You get paid more than me, you fat size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it, I thought that was just so opposite in terms of sort of, you know, the failure of trust in terms of working from home or, or working from anywhere. Um, but, you know, if, if I reflect back on, you know, the future of the office, which is distinct from the future of work per se, which a lot of our conversation did sort of veer into the more sort of general stuff. Then I think, again, we're in this sort of position where there's a lot of employees who are in positions of control and influence now with the great resignation, a lot of people moving jobs, changing jobs, trying to find more meaning, perhaps in the context of that, um, you know, reconfigured sense of mortality. And, and, and that talent has has power and influence and i think you, you know as james plunkett said to us before you know the weekend was an invention the four-day week was an invention that was lobbied for uh, and campaigned for as will be you know working from home working from anywhere as will be the rights uh you know and and protections that were put in place for an increasingly freelance based workforce so all of these things Again, we have to step up uh, and try and influence because if it's an employee-led market, 
then we have to kind of cajole and, and drag our employers with us into the place that we want to go to do meaningful work that has real purpose, that serves the world and also fits into the lives that we want to live. And that sounds utopian, but I think it's actually pragmatically achievable. As she said, as she said, for the first time in 100 years, this is the biggest shakeup we've ever had. And the only people I think who are really weeping through all of this are commercial property agents. And we're like going, <laughs> going, ah, this looks terrifying. And you know what? You know, when it comes to people who really, you know, don't deserve to have anything bad ever happen to them, it's commercial property agents because they've been such a benign <laughs> and, and wonderful force throughout <laughs> history that the, the good they've done and the joy they've brought and the reasonable way they go about that. But no, fuck off. I mean, you know, if there's a one group of people that could probably do with a kicking, it's them. And um, talking about dragging our employers into the future, sort of on this podcast, John is the big celebrity and we are sort of the, the Z lists. So therefore, that kind of makes us his employee uh his his employees uh, ed you know if you said about dragging our employer sort of you know into the future what 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 do you think we should uh, be asking john to do better um in series four uh introductions N- know that it's series four <laughs> know that it's series four <laughs> exactly I mean, we, we, a lot of podcasts like to go full circle. It's a thing in sitcoms where you should always end where you started to give that view of the sense that the world never changes and you never move on. I think to start with a really nuanced answer from Mark about trust and believing in people to end in that vitriolic spewing forth of his hatred of commercial property agents, I think is where we should end this week. Um, there's one more. So as I've said, this is your last chance to have your questions answered before we take a break before Series 4. So here's how you can get in touch with us. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you as ever to our guest. And thank you as ever, first and foremost, to Mark and Ed. Gentlemen, thank you. It's always a pleasure.